Well, if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17. If you don't have your Bibles, the text will be printed on the screen. And just in a way of of Scripture intro, before we hear what is a pretty long passage of Scripture, just a little context about what is going on here. Paul is on layover in Athens. Uh, It would be the equivalent for us of traveling plans being slightly altered, and he has a layover for a few days in Athens on his way to Corinth. Corinth, the city of real political power, Athens, having already had its golden age about 400 years previous, but Athens being a significant city, intellectual powerhouse, city of culture, of philosophy, of art, of statues, of temples, And so Paul is awaiting for Silas and Timothy to join him. And he gets up and he does what everyone would do. He goes on a sightseeing tour, a walk through the city. I'm in Athens. Let's go here of this city. Let's go look at this city and see what it's all about. And that's literally what's happening here. We'll pick up in verse 16 of verse 34. Listen to Paul's walking tour of Athens and what it results in. While Paul was waiting for them, that's Silas and Timothy, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. 
Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And that, at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Let's pray that God would help us understand and apply his word. <clears throat> Lord, we pray, as we always do, that you would be at work by your word and by your spirit to show us the truth and the beauty of it. But this, Lord, this morning, would you show us the power of it to inform us and to reform us with hearts for ministry that would care about the very place in which we live and seek to have the most effective ministry that we could. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so this morning, let me start with this. I learned in seminary that a good sermon is about one thing. A good sermon is about one thing. This morning, I'm not going to preach a good sermon according to that definition. Because I'm preaching about three things. Um, but I'm doing it intentionally and for a reason. I want us to hear this philosophy of ministry that we've been considering for a number of weeks, and it just doesn't need to go any more long or be any more tedious than it is, and I think I can hit a target addressing these three things at once. You will be the judge of that in a few minutes. So, Paul is in Athens. He's waiting for Silas. He's waiting for Timothy. He walks about the town, this significant town, really formerly more significant than it is at this moment. And it is filled with icons, images, statues, temples, beautiful architecture that you can still see to this day. Beautiful, humanly speaking, breathtaking that human beings could create such a culture and such a city 
And so Paul, who had studied under Gamaliel, who was familiar with some of these philosophies that were popular in Athens, he's fascinated by what he sees. But he's greatly distressed by what he sees. Now the English word there that the NIV uses is that he's greatly distressed. We get another English word from that. Some of you would be familiar, familiar with, some of you doctors, paroxysm. And paroxysm is the imagery and where we get the concept of a seizure from. So it says Paul is provoked. He's visibly upset. He does not like what he sees. And commentators have said it's really not right to interpret Paul as angry, which some translations will lead to that sense of us when we read it. He's really exercised by what he's seeing. And it's not anger. I think it's really better understood by his experience recorded in Acts chapter 9 where he encounters the risen Jesus, is blinded, comes to know who the Lord is, and now knowing the Lord and being set apart by the Lord to be the instrument by which other people know the Lord, he is in a context where there are all these false gods, these false images, and he's like, but I know the truth. These people are all being led astray. The whole culture has been led astray. These are false gods. They're not true. And in that way, he's distressed. That it's all lies, you could say. It's all people being misled. And he's provoked by it to his very spirit. He's distressed by it. Of Athens, Greece, it was said that at this time, there were as many as 30,000 gods. Uh, one historian remarked that you could find a god in Athens, Greece more easily than you could find a person in Athens, Greece. It's an overstatement, but it was communicating the sentiment. A very religious culture. They believed in a deity. They just didn't know who he was. And so Paul is exercised because he, he has the answer of what they are looking for. And so Paul, the passage says that as he walks about Athens, he sees the condition of Athens. And it's not so simple of a word as just seeing with his eyes. It's really a language of him discerning, surveying the culture, discerning the people of what he is seeing. He's taking it all in and coming to a conclusion about their lostness and their waywardness. That is what distressed him. His response to that was to go to three places. Did you pick up that on the, on the text? The first thing he did was he went to the synagogue. He went to go to talk to those people who should have categories, as he did. Jews or God-fearing Greeks. And he went there and he spoke to them and not much is said about it. Didn't seem to get it. Didn't seem to have his categories. Next, he strategically goes where? To the marketplace. Now, you may be like me when you read that and you picture the jockey lot, the flea market, 
or the little market I drive by in Greenwood, I'm not sure of the name of it, on Saturday mornings, everybody brings their stuff, they rent a table, and they sell all of their, their junk, right? <laughs> Hoping somebody wants it or needs it. Well, that was kind of like the marketplace, but really we don't know anything in our culture quite like the marketplace here. It was the hub of everything. It was the hub of interpersonal relationships. It was the hub of communication. It was the hub of commerce. It was the, it was the internet as we know it. It was, it was Amazon Marketplace available to you, Twitter available to you, Facebook available to you, Walmart online available to you. Everything happened there. It's not like that with us. It used to be everybody went to the mall 30, 40 years ago, but even that's not true anymore. So we really, when we read this, we really don't have a category for what this is. But it's everything. All means of person-to-person -person communication, sharing of ideas, selling of goods. There's so much going on in the marketplace. And the Apostle Paul strategically goes there, and he becomes a communicator there. And his communication there is with the common people, those Athenians. And what he says to them, and the way that he says it to them, powerful. Because he's speaking out of that conviction of the God that I know, you don't know. And I want you to know Him. And these people are, are shocked by what he's talking about. The philosophers of the day, the culture of the day, and he does such a, a, he makes such a strong impression that he gets invited to the Areopagus, which is the third setting. Now this is really the room, you might say, of the academy. These are the professors. These are the real philosophers of the day who the passage says just love to sit around and talk about all the newest ideas. Right? These are faculty is what they are. And Paul comes before them and he models some very significant things about ministry. This is not a sermon to go into all his strategy and details. This is a big picture sermon. So I'll hit the one thing I want to say about this in this way. In all of his talking to the Athenians, he did not quote from the Bible. He didn't quote from Scripture. He hadn't been through the newest church planning seminars. He didn't realize what he was doing. Or did he? What Paul did was he quoted their authors back to them. He said, I saw a statue to an unknown God. Then he quoted from their poets, which he would have known from his own study. He knew their stuff as well as they knew their stuff. And he used that as the doorway to communicate to them in that place, at that particular time, in that culture. He met them where they were and then engaged them with the hard truth of the gospel. That Jesus died for sinners and that He's been resurrected from the dead. And you must repent. So He brought the goods, He brought the message, He brought the heat, so to speak, but He went through the door that they were familiar with. So this morning, quite simply, this is a sermon about three things. And the first is this, 
Remember, these are presuppositions. The last two sermons have been on presuppositions in ministry. And this morning, the, the, the last three presuppositions are demographics matter. You've got to know your people, your setting, your context, and who they are. Demographics matter. Secondly, the individual has to be known and understood. And then thirdly, we've got to be aware of the human learning process. So one at a time. First, presupposition number five, demographics matter. We need to know to whom we are ministering. Because that will help us to determine how to best minister, how to best communicate and connect to them. That is what the Apostle Paul is showing us in Acts chapter 17. Jesus does it his own way. In John chapter 4, ministering to the woman at the well. But meeting people in their place, knowing what questions to ask, and going through the right doors, those are strategies that our presuppositions have to inform. Every people, every town, every city, every individual has a history. They have an educational background. They have personal experiences. Whether they're a child or a youth, or if they're single, or if they're adults, if they're senior adults, whether or not abuse of some kind has been a part of their background. Whether or not they have a background in the church at all and know the Bible at all. Whether it's an urban setting or a rural location. And whether you're dealing with the rich or the poor. These are all contextual issues. And the most effective ministry would be the one who takes that seriously. Who considers the people in two ways. The people within the doors already and the people not yet within the doors. And all that's to say, ministry's complicated in that way, right? You've got to read the demographics. A church has to read the demographics. They have to know the people and the context. So I looked all week for this illustration <coughs> that I remember from 30 years ago, and I couldn't find it. Um, it's from Dan Doriani, who is a professor of mine at Covenant Seminary. I remember the story, but I, I can't cite it specifically. But the story was this. He told of two women who were missionaries in a foreign land in a village. And every morning, those two new female minister, uh, missionaries, as I remember it, would get up early and would sit on their porch and sip tea. Sounds like what we would do, doesn't it? what they did all their lives, and now they're in a foreign land and they're sipping tea on morning tea on a porch. Well, after a week or so, they realized that people were not treating them very well. And so they asked the person that they knew who oversaw that territory and said, why is everybody treating us so poorly? And they were like, well, what are you doing? Well, we get up in the morning first thing and we sip tea out on the porch. And he was like, oh, that's your problem. What do you mean that's our problem? That's what the prostitutes do in that culture. So they were interpreting you through that lens of their culture. And of course, two women were like, oh, I had no idea, right? That's a demographic 
issue. you got to know your people. you got to know your place. Now, some of you could tell your own stories about places that you are and ministry that you're doing. I'm looking at the Shanes right now. They have their own versions of those stories that they can tell. And you do too. Even from the workplace, uh, from your school, you've got to know the context of your demographics. Demographics tell us a lot. They will inform us. They will help us to make best decisions the most precise decisions about what to do. Now, comment about that. <clears throat> Pray for your elders. Your elders in the weeks and months and year ahead have a lot of work to do on demographics. Knowing our people here and those who are not yet here. Making sure that we are strategically offering and providing the best strategies of ministry to accomplish our purpose and our goals. Rarely do churches think like this. We tend to just do what we've always done. But somebody's got to keep their eye on the ball, so to speak. Do you know why? Because cultures change so quickly, right? Just pre-COVID, think back to pre-COVID, how we did things. There are things that need to be different now. And somebody's got to have their eye on the ball to say, how do we reach people? How do we welcome people? What do we offer for the unreached, and what do we offer those who are reached? Let's do the best that we can. Demographics are critical. They are key for that reason. I learned so much of this from my experience in campus ministry, from RUF. 95% of what I'm giving you in the POM is everything I got from RUF. I'm going to give you just a little bit more in the next two weeks that, that is original to me. Additional things I learned through my experience but on a college campus, um, how quickly can a college campus change? You can't assume, after doing it for 20 years, that in year 20, you run the same strategies the same ways that you did 20 years ago. It just doesn't work. Add a football team, and you'll see a culture changes immediately overnight, right, by 150 people. So in ministry, we've always got to be adept. we always got to be wise. Greenwood is changing around us. The reversal of Roe v. Wade and the predominance of teenage pregnancy in Greenwood, which I have learned in recent weeks, that's a demographic issue that we have to be prepared for. Are we going to have a strategy, a means to minister to those needs? So I, I trust you see and sense what I'm saying. It's, it's not crazy. We really do need to constantly have an eye on our own little demographic in the room and on the larger demographic outside of the room. I'll say this. Uh, this is a quote. I'm not going to tell you who wrote it. Um, but it says this. True biblical preaching seeks to open God's Word to reveal the truth, the majesty, and the beauty of the Gospel to a particular people, in a particular place, and in a particular moment. God's message is not old and outdated. It does not need us to make it relevant. Rather, we show forth its relevance as we teach it, preach it, and apply it with the context of our hearers in mind. Do you hear what I'm saying? We don't make God's Word relevant. God's Word is relevant. We stand forth and show its relevance. But we do do the hard work of making sure we know who our people are, how to best speak to them, 
how to best communicate what God's given us to them. Amen? Amen. All right, number six. Ministry presupposition number six. The individual. The individual is complex and needs to be understood. So demographics is the whole of the people group. Now we're breaking it down to person by person by person. The individuals that make up your demographic. <clears throat> Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. This is the Apostle Paul again. Listen to him, thinking about the individual. Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone who win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. And to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Paul is sharing here a strategy, an approach, a perception of ministering to individual people as well as to demographics. He's saying, look, I'll be what I need to be to communicate most effectively to the people that I'm desiring to hear and believe the gospel. And this is what it is to minister to the individual. This is what makes ministry exhausting, by the way. Ministry is not a one-size-fits-all approach. Biblical ministry really is knowing the individual, getting to know the individual, their story, their history, their ups, their downs. Aren't we thankful that it's not the pastor alone who is called to do ministry this way? What hope would he have? But in this way, all of us are called to minister to individuals, to know one another's stories, to speak gospel truth to it. Every sheep is a unique individual. Every one of you. You have your own stories, your own successes and failures, your own hurts, your own everything. But every shepherd is a unique individual as well. RUF taught me this very well, and I'm forever thankful for it. I know that um, it's very easy for ministers to do gift comparison with one another. You have stellar professors in seminary, and you're like, oh, I've, I've got to be academic. Well, you never be academic like seminary faculty, right? But RUF pounded into me, and I hope to lovingly pound into you. You are your, your own unique individuals with gifts, and your job's to explore those and go use those. Not to make yourself miserable trying to be like some other gifted person doing it the way they do it. And the same is true for ministers. Um, I, I'll give you a visible comparison. When I was going through the process of interview to see if the Lord was calling me to GPC, I remember making it clear. 
Archie Moore has strengths and gifts that Paul Patrick doesn't have. And Paul Patrick cannot pretend to be Archie Moore, right? I'm not going to sing happy birthday to you, right? And you now know not to expect that of me because I'm a unique individual. I've got to function within my gifts and who I am and who God has shaped me to be through my experiences. And then Archie's free to be Archie, to do Archie things, I call it. To love people well, right? To bring joy and energy the way only Archie can. If you tried to go pretend to be Archie, you probably couldn't do it. But God isn't expecting you to do it. He's expecting you to be Bob and Mary and Carol and Peter and Tom, whoever you are. Find out, use your personality, your gifts. Or as I used to tell my students, one day you're going to have a patio or a deck or a backyard or a living room. You go use it your way. Do your thing. Find a way to practice hospitality. Don't try to do it the way the Patricks did it, but you'll find your sweet spot that you enjoy. You'll be miserable trying to do it like somebody else, but you go find what you're comfortable in your own skin doing. So in that way, there's this mutual respect of the individual. I don't expect you to be like other people that I've ministered to. This church is going to have its own personality, its own gifts, right? It would be wrong for me to impose on you those expectations, just like it would be wrong for you to impose those expectations on me. So do you feel the freedom of that? Every minister's different, every member's different, every intern's different. And that's good. That's God at work, using us and the skin that He created around us. Every sheep is a unique individual, every shepherd is also. It's not fair to compare sheep or shepherds or gifts, but there is freedom to be found in your own redeemed skin, using your gifts for the glory of God. The, uh, the presupposition of the individual reminds us that one-size-fits-all ministry methods are not optimal and that the hard relational work of getting to know one another is actually our call in ministry. Amen? Amen. Thirdly, lastly, ministry presupposition number seven, the learning process. The human learning process process. How do humans learn? How, to hum how do humans grow? This is 100% RUF. This is not me. Matter of fact, RUF got this from another ministry decades ago. We have found it to be the proven, wise posture and practice of ministry that is both to and through people. A ministry to people and through those people, which is also known as Biblical discipleship. So, what is the learning process? T-D-O-E-E. -E. And I, in the future, will probably refer to it in that way. You'll hear this come up. T-D-O-E-E. -E. T-D-O-E-E. -E. That is, to teach, to demonstrate, to observe, to evaluate, and to encourage let me give it to you in the way of an illustration. All of that is the learning process. It starts with teaching. It starts with words, saying true things. But it doesn't stop there, right? It can't stop there. The most powerful addition to teaching 
is demonstrating, right? To model for the disciple what friendship looks like, what faithfulness looks like, what kindness, what patience looks like. You can tell somebody, God wants you to be patient. And that's true. That's good teaching. But what they really need is to see it demonstrated, right? And then beyond demonstration, there's observing. Let's see if they're patient when they're in a van on a trip to Carowinds with a bunch of youth. Are they patient in that setting? And you evaluate it. You talk to them. Hey, how did that go? Did you pull your hair out? And then you encourage them. It was great. I saw you grow. I saw you be more patient. I did not go on the trip to Carowinds. I made that up on the spot. There was no drama at Carowinds. No drama at Carowinds. Um, T-D-O-E-E. There's a learning process, and we have to be patient with people as they move through it. And those leading ministry need to make sure they have the full process in mind, that we're not just teaching, but we're demonstrating ourselves, right? We're making observations, evaluations, and encouragement. Imagine a father trying to teach a son to throw a football or to shoot a basketball, which has happened in my life a few times. You can teach a son, you can tell him verbally everything he needs to do about how to hold a basketball, how to hold a football, where the fingers need to be, how the elbows need to be, how the shoulders are. You can teach, you can say true things. But what, help, what helps the most is what? All right, son, watch me do this a few times. Pay attention to the details, the mechanics. This is what I've told you. Here it is in motion. Here it is in form. This is what it should look like. And then you tell them to do what? Try it yourself. Practice. Shoot a thousand free throws or layups or throw a thousand balls. Just do it. Get into the mechanics. And I'm going to watch you and I'll evaluate you, make little tweaks here and there. And I'll encourage you. At the end of it, I'm going to say, man, you're getting so much better. We came out here, you couldn't throw a ball five years ago, and now, I mean, you really can. P-D-O-E-E. -E. You see it in parenting. You see it in discipleship. It's got to be intentional, and it's got to exist. You weave all this together, like I said last week, and what you have is, I believe, a sincere effort to be faithful to the Scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission, which is the motto of the Presbyterian Church in America that we wholeheartedly embrace. It's what we want. So when we talk about presuppositions, there's a rhyme and a reason. Um, maybe that's... I'll close with that. I hope that you'll see we really do things intentionally around here. Um, give you a couple of examples. <clears throat> Our youth, when they come to youth group tonight, going to have some water games for you, some ice cream. And after that, some more water games for you, I think. <clears throat> and then we're going to do something. We're going to open up the Bible, and we're going to have a lesson from Job chapter 1 and talk about suffering in the Christian life. Because when better to prepare a Christian for suffering than when they're young, right? That it's coming for every one of us. So some pretty sober words and a long passage of Scripture. I'll go ahead and tell you it's too long, but you need to hear it. We're being intentional there. And then after that, we sing some hymns and songs that say true things. If time allows, we're going to break up into small groups. 
But Pastor Paul's not going to lead that small group. And the adults aren't going to lead that discussion. We're going to give the youth, this is what we've been doing for several weeks now, we're going to give them questions, printed questions, five questions, and something to pray for. And then we go to the seniors usually, the old ones, and we say, you ask those questions and you facilitate the conversation. The adults are going to step out of the way. We've done our teaching. We've demonstrated. Now we're going to give you a chance to dialogue through these questions. They're not making up their own questions. We're giving them the questions. Why? Because it's time for them to spread their wings and find out this is what a small group is. And when I go away from the church or off to college, I'm not scared to say I could help lead a small group. Because we gave them a chance to spread their wings and to grow. T-D-O-E-E. The learning process. We're not afraid for them to learn. We've heard that uh, these small groups, they tend to talk more without Pastor Paul in the room. Or without adults in the room. Of course they do. And if that works, we'll do that. But guess what? If we find out it's not working well, you know what we'll do? We'll change. Because we're doing our own evaluation of what is the best strategy. Is this working? Is this not? So things are done intentionally with a rhyme and a reason. Always reflecting. Always considering. And never afraid to change anything. We've got to be like the Apostle Paul, walking about Athens, reading the situation, discerning, surveying. How is the best way to speak the truth of the Gospel to these people at this particular time, in this particular place, at this particular moment? Amen? That's what we want to be true in all of our ministries. Let's pray that it would be. Lord, that is our prayer, that we would be faithful in ministry, following examples given to us of how it's been done in Scripture and in history. Lord, we want to bear much fruit. When we speak, we want to speak truthfully and effectively. But Lord, Your Spirit... We are dependent upon Your Spirit that any words would ever have effect on a human heart. And so we pray, even now as we sing true things, would You minister to our hearts and give us a desire to co-labor in this work of ministry. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.